Kindness does so many things for us. And there's loads of evidence that receiving an act of kindness improves your well-being. Mm -hmm. And then there's even more evidence that it improves the well-being of the person who is the giver, if you like, that it makes yeah. them feel good too. It will even get you the things you want. It will improve relationships. It will improve mental health. So why not do it? Before we get started, just wanted to let you know that my latest book, Happy Minds, Happy Life, 10 Simple Ways to Feel Great Every Day, is available to buy all over the world in the UK, America, Canada, Australia, India, to name just a few countries. It's available as a paperback, ebook, and as an audiobook, which I am narrating. And if you enjoy my weekly podcast, I really think you're going to enjoy this book. Feedback has been truly wonderful. Do pick up your own copy if you have not done so yet. And if you enjoy the book, as we approach the festive season, why not consider gifting it to someone in your life? Now, on to this week's episode. When was the last time that someone was kind to you? Or you did something kind for someone else? Well, I'm sure you won't have to think back too far to find a few examples. And that's because the world is a much kinder place than we might think. Today's guest, Claudia Hammond, is an award-winning broadcaster and psychology lecturer at the University of Sussex. She has just published her latest book, The Keys to Kindness, and in it, she's on a mission to elevate kindness in the world around us. In our conversation, she shares the results of the world's largest in-depth study on kindness and highlights the wide range of mental and physical health benefits for both giver and receiver. Yes, that's right. Kindness is good for your physical health and your mental well-being. We talk about what kindness and compassion really mean, the wide variety of ways in which we can all make a difference, the fears and obstacles that prevent people from being kind, and why we should intentionally practice more kindness in our relationships as well as in the workplace. We, of course, look at the particular brand of unkindness that we commonly see on social media, the benefits of social media for net levels of kindness in the world, why empathy is a skill you can learn, and how being kind to others starts with being kind to yourself. Now, when you really examine the incredible benefits of kindness for us as individuals, but also across society as a whole, I honestly think that kindness has a bit of a PR problem. It's something we see as a bit throwaway, undervaluing it at best, dismissing it as soft at worst. But by bringing us the psychology and neuroscience of why kindness matters, Claudia provides a powerful call to action to notice and create more of it in our daily lives. I hope this conversation inspires you to rise to the challenge. Now, before we get started, just a quick shout out to Vivo Barefoot, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, I'm a huge fan of Vivo Barefoot Shoes. I've been wearing them for over 10 years now, well before they started supporting my podcast. And they really have had a huge impact on my own life, as well as that of my family, many of my friends, and a lot of my patients. Now, here's the thing. I have seen so many benefits when people start wearing minimalist shoes like Vivo's. Improvements in back pain, hip pain, knee pain, foot pain, even things like plantar fasciitis, as well as a generalized increased enjoyment of movements. Because when you start walking around in minimalist shoes like Vivo's, you automatically become more mindful of the experience 
and so you feel more connected to the ground beneath your feet. And contrary to what you might initially think, most people find Vivos really, really comfortable. In fact, many people who try them tell me they would never go back to wearing cushioned shoes. If you've never tried them before, I really would encourage you to give them a go. It is completely risk-free to do so because they offer a 100-day trial for new customers. So if you're not happy, you can just send them back for a full refund. And honestly, they are the only shoes that my wife and I wear and the only shoes that I will get for my children. If you go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash livemore, they are giving 15% off as a one-time code to all of my podcast listeners. Terms and conditions do apply. To get your 15% off code, all you have to do is go to vivobarefoot.com forward slash livemore. And now my conversation with Claudia Hammond. I think one of the central cases you make is that we need to recognize, appreciate and value kindness more. Why is that? Well, I think we need to notice that it is going on because kindness is at the heart of human relationships and kindness is what helps us to get on, which helps us to sort out problems. And if you look around the world, you know, there are an enormous number of problems and there's a lot to be sorted out. And that's all about people listening to each other and all about people understanding each other and communicating. And really, if you think about it, that is what kindness is. That is what kindness means. It is at the heart of our relationships. And so I'm saying that there is more kindness in the world than we might think. You know, you watch the news and you see terrible, terrible mm -hmm. things happening. And of course, that is what has to be on the news. You have to have the negative things on the news because it doesn't matter that, um, you know, 20 people weren't murdered in Luton last night. But if 20 people were murdered, we need to know that. So you're not going to just have on the news saying that people were nice to each other because that's not the thing we urgently need to know about. And of course, that can then give us the impression that most things are bad, whereas there is a load of kindness going on. So the first thing I want people to do is to, to recognise that kindness, to almost become a kindness twitcher and to, to look out for it. Um, and to see that it is going on. Tiny acts of kindness that you see all the time. You know, on my way on the train here at the station, uh, there was somebody selling poppies. I bought a poppy. Lots of people were buying poppies. That was all an act of kindness that they were doing, donating some money to some people who will really benefit from that. Um, somebody started chatting to me on the train and somebody, and she then went to the um, uh she then went to the buffet with somebody else and said, do you want, you know, do you, shall I get you something while I'm there? You know, that was acts of kindness as well. And they are there all the time if you look for them. How did that make you feel on the train? Number one, when you bought a poppy. And number two, when someone offered to get you something when they were going to buy some food. It makes you feel really good. And there's loads of evidence that receiving an act of kindness improves your well-being. Mm -hmm. And then there's even more evidence that it improves the well-being of the person who is the, the giver, if you like, that it makes yeah. them feel good too. And so as the person, you know, buying the poppy, yeah, I did feel good after that. I thought, oh, I've done a, you know, I've done a good thing there. Yeah. And that was, that was a nice thing to do. At the start of chapter two in your book, um, you wrote something that really caught my attention. Behaving compassionately improves the lives of others. It also improves our own lives. There are measurable boosts to health, both mental and physical. Behaving kindly can act as a buffer against burnout and stress and improve our well-being. It brings us happiness and can even help us to live longer. 
that's a pretty good sell for kindness, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. You know, that kindness does so many things for us that why not do more of it in a way? Because there is good evidence about all these things. So there's lots of experiments, say, where they um, stop people in the street in the morning and they give them it's done in Canada. They give them $5 or, or $20. And then half the people are told, spend it on yourself sometime today and meet us again at five o'clock. The other half of the people are told, spend this on someone else. You could give it to charity. You could buy something for somebody and meet us again at five o'clock. And when they meet them at five o'clock, they then give them mood questionnaires. And the people who did something for someone else are in a better mood. Their well-being is higher than the people who did something for themselves, even though they got a free thing. You know, they got yeah. a present from this study, which is nice. But yet doing it for someone else is even is even better. This morning, in preparation for you coming to the studio, I went to a local coffee shop. Uh, I dropped my daughter at school. I went there. I thought I'm going to read a bit more of the book in different environments. And although... I wasn't reading something directly related to this. You actually, um, the moment where I thought of this was when you spoke about this lady called Pinky, who does these five acts of kindness each day. We'll talk about that shortly. But I was about to buy my wife a takeaway coffee to come home and give it to her. I thought, you know what? I'm just going to pay it forward. So as I went to get it and, uh, and pay for it, I just said to the barista, can I also pay for a coffee for the next person who comes in? She said, yeah, sure. So I did that. There was no one else in the coffee <laughs> shop. And then I saw someone entering. So personally, I thought, you know what? I don't want to be here Yeah, yeah. when she has that interaction. And she goes, oh, that was that gentleman. Like, I thought, yeah, no, no, no. slightly embarrassing. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, yeah I, and I guess for me, I, I've been thinking about that. I felt great afterwards. It felt really nice that it was an anonymous mm. act of kindness. And so I was going to ask you, does it matter whether I was there or not, or the fact that this was anonymous, you know, how does that impact the potential benefits? Yeah, so both will improve your well-being at that my, moment. My well-being. Your well-being, yeah. Both will make you feel good, the fact that you did that thing. Um, and it's interesting if you look at things like um, donation pages for charities on websites. You know, some people will do it anonymously. Some people will do it and leave their name. And there has been a study finding that if some people in a row have left more, then the next person leaves more um, and particularly that men are likely to leave more if it's in a, particularly if it's an attractive woman who's raising the money <laughs> and another man then leaves some they then slightly compete and, and leave a bit more and this all helps raise more money um, <laughs> what does that tell so you about human nature exactly exactly yeah so that there can be some sort of showing off about it and in a way that's how things like charity auctions work you know charity auctions the idea is that people in the room who can afford it show off the thing they want to buy at the auction and out-compete each other. And th they get to, you know, feel good and show that they've, if they want to, show how successful they are. But the charity gets even more money from it. So in the end, it benefits those those recipients for that. So in a way, I think it doesn't it doesn't matter. It's not, it's not worse that it's not anonymous and that we shouldn't question our motives too much. If it gets people to do kind things, then it's okay to feel good about it. And it's okay to, as long as it is authentic, then it is okay to to even do it thinking, yeah, this will make me feel good. It'll make them feel good. It'll be all good. I, th I think in a way we shouldn't get too, too sort of precious about motives. As you are describing that, Claudia, the case of well-known public figures or celebrities who donate to charity comes up for me because mm. these things are often 
they're often met with a lot of skepticism. Mm. Oh, this famous person who's a multimillionaire gave £10,000 to this charity, for example. And, you know, whenever these things happen, I haven't seen it recently, but, you know, from recollection, when these things yeah. happen, there's a whole manner of different comments. Some people go, that's great. Other people will go, that should have been done anonymously. You're just trying to make a good name for yourself. Like, I don't know, why is there such skepticism, do you think, when... I guess, well-known people, famous people make these big donations. Yeah, and it's known as tainted altruism. And so the the idea is that their altruism is somehow tainted by the fact that they're they're famous. And then some people will say, well, they could have done it anonymously. Now, they could do it anonymously, but they can bring a charity huge amounts of publicity because Mm. of their famous name. So, yes, it might make them look good as well. Uh, So I I think it's slightly harsh when people criticise them because people might say, oh, well, they could have given them $20 Well, they could have done, but at least they gave them 10,000, you know, and plenty of people aren't giving away their 10,000 at all. So why do we dislike them more than the one who didn't give 10,000? And we sort of think that, oh, they think they've got something to gain by that. But but have they really got that much to gain? You know, they've already got, they're already very well known for their thing. But but also, let's say they did give 10,000 to one charity. How do we know that they have anonymously not given 50 or 100k to some another one? Point. You know, it's exactly. kind of, yeah. Uh, it, well, yeah. and this kind of assumption that we know it's this, I mean, you write this, there is a chapter in the book on social media. We're definitely going to get to that. But this whole idea that, you know, just what you are fed on social media is the totality of someone's life. Yeah. That's also a little bit toxic as well. It's like, well, that's just one component that someone yeah. has chosen to share. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They could easily be doing other things. And I'm sure I'm sure many of them are. And sometimes you do hear stories where you hear about a celebrity who did something very anonymously. You know, they disguised themselves and went yeah. to work at a homeless shelter or whatever it was. Yeah. Why did you write a book on kindness? I had the idea actually during the first lockdown in the pandemic because I noticed so many acts of kindness going on and you know so many streets like mine and many many others you know all set up mutual aid whatsapp groups and people were just being so lovely to each other and I just thought this is this is so amazing the kindness that is being used to help us all get through this and and I wanted to know more about it started looking all all into the research and there is there's so much interesting research from psychology and and neuroscience as well on on kindness and uh, and I thought, well, let's look at let's look at that research and see what what are the benefits and mm. how can we go about having more of it and being a bit kinder. And it's and it's not. I wouldn't say you know I'm not some amazing saint myself. I think kindness can sometimes be really difficult to do, and sometimes in situations it's complicated to know how best to be kind and what would be the kind thing to do. Um, but I thought, well, it's but it's worth looking at that and trying to be kinder. As I think about kindness, kindness is something we've spoken about on this podcast before. It's something I'm incredibly passionate about. Now, one of the things I would say with kindness is that I think if you ask people on the street, you know, do you want to be kind? They'll probably say, yeah, you know, I think we all know it's good to be kind. What I think is powerful about the research you've put together is that it goes beyond just, you know, it feels good. It's the right thing to do. As you say, there's there's a lot of research, psychology, neuroscience, and we've already mentioned, you know, protective against stress and burnout, right? Can help us live longer. You know, I, I wonder if there's a, a PR problem mm. with kindness. And mm. what brings this to mind is last night over dinner, uh, you met my son this morning, but my daughter, who's at school at the moment, was saying, oh, daddy, you're doing a podcast tomorrow. Who are you talking to? I said, oh, Claudia Hammond. She says, oh, you've had her before, haven't you? I said, yeah. What are you talking about? It's a kindness. 
she goes, oh, I get it, daddy. You know, be kind, be kind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it made me think, right? So they're obviously hearing that at school, that it's mm. important to be kind. And I, I, I hope throughout this conversation, we're going to get to these kind of robust pieces of research yeah. to show it's not just about it's the nice and right thing to do, is it? It's much more than that. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Kindness does have a sort of PR problem. It's seen as something that's a bit soft and a bit weak and kind of, oh, well, it would be nice to have that. And yeah, it's all very well, but it's all a little bit flaky. And that's just not true. And I, and, and so, so I am quite sort of muscular in my views about kindness, if you like, that I think, you know, we need it. It's okay to say that it's a good thing and that it will benefit us as well as other people and to find ways of doing more of it and of being kind more often, um, which will be very different ways for different people. It's not that everybody must go and volunteer or that everybody must, you know, climb Mount Kilimanjaro and raise loads in sponsorship. I mean, you know, don't don't let me stop you if you want to do that. That's absolutely great. But but it can be in really small ways as well. And what I want people to know is that even those really small ways can really make a difference to people. So mm-hmm. just chatting to someone in the shop who happens to be in the queue next to you, that 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 could be the only person they chat to all day. That that could be the conversation mm-hmm. that really makes them feel a little bit better that day because it was their only human contact and they were feeling lonely. You, you don't know the impact that really small things that you do can have. And there's really interesting research on talking to strangers. And lots of this has been done by um, Gillian Sandstrom, who's a, a colleague of mine at Sussex University. And she has found that people are often nervous about talking to strangers because they're afraid the stranger won't like it, the other person won't like it, and that they're going to bore them and that the other person would wish they weren't speaking to them. And then when she does experiments where she gets people deliberately, she tells them, you must go and talk to, you know, five different people today and then ask both sides whether they like it. Actually, it turns out they nearly all like it and that most people do like it and that they don't judge us badly. So most people are afraid they'll be judged badly by the other person. And it's it's just not true at all, you know, that it just yeah. isn't. And um, and it's just so nice. You know, I was in the um, supermarket the other day and we were having a, a party. And so we were just buying donuts to create a donut mountain cake. And the woman behind me said, oh, you're having a party. And then we ended up having a chat all mm. about that and what I was going to do with the donuts and things. And it's just, well, isn't that nice? You know, that's just a nice thing. So even just talking to a stranger, I would count as an act of kindness. Now, obviously, if you stay and, you know, bore on for ages and tell them your life story and they didn't want you to, then that's a bit different. But, and you can have, I've had really profound um, interactions with, with strangers. Um, There was one time I was on a plane and um, I was reading a book about transhumanism, about people trying to um, find ways of them living on after their body has died. You know, can they download their brain to a computer or cryogenics and, you know, all things that uh, don't, there is no way of those working at the moment, but interesting, <laughs> interesting that people are going to such effort to try and what they think that will be like later. And the woman next to me, um, I think she was Norwegian, she asked me, um, what's, trans, what's transhumanism mean? And I explained it. And we ended up for the rest of the flight talking about what we thought might happen to our bodies when we die and what we thought might happen after death. So a very profound personal conversation in a way. And we carried on while we queued for passports. We carried on while we waited for our bags. And then it seemed slightly strange sort of saying goodbye because then our respective friends came to meet us and it was kind of, well, lovely talking to you anyway. Bye. And and it was sort of odd in a way. But that all came from her asking me that one thing about what you're reading. I love stuff yeah. like that. And I guess in some ways, the fact that there was going to be a finite end point 
Mm. maybe in some way contributed to actually going that deep that yes. quickly. Yeah. You know, so like, I can say anything. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I can be it, really honest. And, yeah, and it, yeah. So it probably allowed that deepness, which you may not have got yeah. with someone you knew potentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what is kindness exactly? So there are arguments about sort of how to define it. Uh, you know, academically and, and how it crosses over with compassion and how it crosses over with, with empathy. And obviously they all share things in common. I define it, and, and so do some others, as, as kindness is something that you do with the aim of benefiting someone else. Now, I say the aim there because sometimes it can go wrong. Mm. You know, sometimes you do try and offer help and maybe somebody doesn't want it or maybe yeah. somebody uh, feels patronised for by what you've offered or you've tried to give somebody something and they say, oh, you know, I don't want your charity type thing. You know, it, yeah. can, it can occasionally go wrong. But um, so that's why I say with the aim of benefiting someone else. But it can be a really wide range of things. So it hasn't got to be, you, you might think of helping someone, you know, um, picking something up for them that they've dropped or showing people the way and things like that or giving people a present. But it can also be forgiving someone who's said something, done something to upset you. It can mean spotting that somebody's left out of a conversation and, mm. and um, or left out generally of something social and, and bringing them in. Or, um, you know, just noticing that somebody's unhappy or really listening, truly listening to somebody who is trying to tell you something important all the way to volunteering um, or, you know, doing uh, um, amazing things or heroism. In a way, it's, it's everything from cups of tea to heroic acts that save lives and, you know, everything in between. But those small things really do matter uh, as well. You know, if people taking each other cups of tea every morning really does make a difference and matter and really strengthens relationships. Tell me about Pinky. Yeah, so Pinky Lilani is somebody who's very, she's very interested in kindness herself. And she takes around with her every day five beautifully wrapped individual chocolates. And she chooses who to give them to. So she just gives them to people she meets in shops. She, she's someone who chats to strangers a lot. And she just gives them away to people to brighten up their, their day slightly. What benefits do you think there are from to her, but also to the people she's been kind to? Yeah, it's interesting. So actually, loads more research has been done on the benefits to the um, person giving the kindness rather than the recipient. And I think possibly because people think, oh, well, it's obvious that it's good for recipients. But then there have been studies that, that have looked at both. So there was an interesting study that I like that was done at um, the Coca-Cola offices in Madrid. But it was done by psychologists at the university, uh, a, a university in California. Interesting that they did it in Madrid. They don't explain why, but that's that's papers for you. But they um, they got a, um, a set of people and some of them were told that they were going to be the givers of kindness and that they gave them a list of 10 other colleagues who didn't know they were going to do this. And they had to plan uh, over the next four weeks to pick a day each week and to carry out five kind acts at work to that list of 10 people over the time. Um, and then the others um, didn't know this was what was going on. They knew they were in a study and they filled in various things about their mood. Um, and they found that after a after at the end of the month of this happening, both groups, their well-being had significantly increased. So both the givers and the receivers of these acts of kindness were benefiting from it. But a month on after that, it had worn off for the recipients, these nice things they were receiving at work, the joy of that. But it hadn't worn off for the givers. Um, possibly because it became a habit and they carried on giving. You, you know, we don't know that. They didn't look at that. But I, want, I wonder slightly if that might be what it was that they carried on. But there's also research showing that even recalling a kind act, kind thing you did for someone else makes you feel better at that moment. Um, 
and can even make it in one study from China that you can you can um, lift heavier weights if you've just thought about something kind you've done for someone. Yeah, I wrote that study down and what yeah. I was going to talk to you about that. I mean, that was just extraordinary. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, because again, I think it it takes it it takes it away from oh, be kind, you know, it's the nice thing to do, which of course I think is a valid enough reason yeah. to, 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 to practice compassion and be kind. But it's showing some really quite profound physical and mental well-being benefits, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. And I think partly it is about the, the words you use as well, because as you're saying, you know, that your daughter said, oh yeah, be kind, whatever. And it's true, there's, you know, a hashtag be kind on social media sometimes gets, gets weaponized and it's yeah. used to shut people down and people say be kind. And it's interesting that in the workplace research, for example, in organisational psychology, they, they tend to refer to it as, there's a field called ethical leadership rather than kind. It's almost, yeah. and it is kindness that they're talking about. You can tell. In the, but it sounds measures, cooler, doesn't it? It just you sounds know. like, oh, I'm going to be an ethical leader rather than a kind leader. Yeah. And I think there is this fear that it sounds a bit wishy-washy to be a kind leader. You can imagine that CEO saying, hey guys, I'm not here today. I'm going to an ethical leadership exactly. conference. Exactly, yes. Whereas if they said they were going to the kind leadership conference, they were going, yeah, yeah. remember what he did to us last week. But yeah. it speaks to that PR problem again, yeah. doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just fascinating. I was, I was thinking... Like earlier on, you said there's more. There's already a lot of kindness in the world, but you want us just to maybe get some more out there. And this morning, I was thinking, why is it then that many of us feel that there isn't? Like yeah. many of us probably, I don't know. You, you we'll talk about you, the kindness test that you, you've done. Um, but I was thinking a little bit, Claudia. I don't know your view on this. I was thinking, well, people these days, there's a lot of stress. There's a lot of burnout. A lot of people feel very time pressured. And so if I think about the physiology of the stress response, when we're feeling stressed, like everything closes in, right? We're just trying yeah. to focus. We're trying to get through, you know, even our vision narrows. Everything comes yeah. inwards. And so kindness at that moment is not really a priority. Whereas I don't know, let's say someone's not working on a Sunday and they have a nice Sunday lunch with their family and they've got no work pressure and they're chilled out. So their stress system is right down. And because they're in parasympathetic, like maybe maybe kindness is much easier to practice in that moment. Yeah. I don't, what do you think to that? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely the case. And I think one thing that's worth thinking, if if, if somebody's really annoyed you, one thing that's, and, and you're feeling very irritated and stressed by this, and it, it, can, you know, it might be a work thing, and then you think, oh, I can't believe they just emailed and said that. It's absolutely ridiculous. And the, and you're feeling annoyed. And one way of trying to deal with that is to think, before you, before you act, think, would I be as annoyed with this person if I was if it was a different day and I wasn't feeling as tired. How much of me feeling really annoyed at this person is that somebody else has just sent something annoying as well and I've got this to do and I've got this to do and I'm absolutely exhausted and how much of it is that? And that that is, in a way, a way of a way of being kinder to the other person in your response is to stop for a moment and think, is this all about them at that moment? Yes, they have been annoying, but would I have reacted differently? And yes, you might well have reacted differently if it had been at a time when you were, as you say, you know, feeling more chilled out. And, Monday morning. And I try really, yeah, and I try really hard to do that, to just sort of think, oh, I'm so annoyed about this. And to then think, well, would I have been as annoyed yesterday? No, because yesterday was a less stressful day. So I wouldn't have been as annoyed as I am now. And yeah. I'm, I'm, so I'm not going to, uh, you know, do that. 
Tell me about this kindness test. Yeah, so the kindness test um, was, I'd already started writing the book, actually, when um, then I was talking to my uh, colleagues at, at Sussex University, and um, they have a whole kindness research centre. And and I thought, there's lots of small studies on kindness, and I thought, well, it would be really good to know what do thousands of people think about kindness? And so... Um, Professor Robin Banerjee was the um, principal investigator on this. And and he created, um, uh, with a group of us, the kindness test. And so it's an online study and it's got lots of standardised measures that have been used a lot before in, in terms of measuring how kind people are um, and personality measures. And we looked asked people about their religions, their their value values, um, all sorts of other factors about them um, as a person and what they thought about kindness at work, whether it's valued or not, all sorts of different things. And I launched it on All in the Mind that I present on Radio 4, the programme about psychology. And then we waited to see would people take part. Now, it's the fourth one of these big studies I've I've done. And more people took part in this than any of the others, which is, I think, really interesting. People, mm. people I think people are really interested in kindness. They, yeah. they, they know that it's good and that we want more of it. And they sort of almost don't know how, how to get the more of it, if you sort of mean. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, the night the nice person I was chatting to on the train this morning, we got chatting because uh, I was checking a couple of figures about uh, different things in experiments. And I had, so I had a copy of my book on the, on the table. And she said, have you, um, oh, that looks interesting. Have you read that book? And I thought, how do I phrase I wrote that book? But um, so I have read it. Um, anyway, we then got into a really interesting discussion about kindness that other people then joined in with as well in our in our um, foursome when we were sitting there. And they were they were both saying, both saying, oh, I'm I'm really interested in kindness. And I think lots of people maybe think that only they're interested in kindness. And actually, loads of people want to do things to do with kindness. So sixty thousand people took part in the sixty thousand sixty thousand people wow. took part in the kindness test. So that makes it the biggest study of of its kind of of kindness that's in depth like this. And some things were more depressing and some things were more optimistic. So um, two thirds of people thought that kindness had either levels of kindness had either stayed the same in their lifetime or gone down. But two thirds of people thought that people had become kinder during the pandemic. Mm. So which is why I think now is a perfect time to almost harness that if more people have um, uh, been kind and maybe got to know people more in their communities that maybe that can can carry on because you know lots of uh certainly the the, the whatsapp groups i'm in have, have, have carried on and people carry on being nice to each other and helping each other and we all know each other a bit more now what was there a difference in terms of um men v women in terms of replying and also i guess different cultures like when i when i think of kindness i think well i imagine different cultures will even express kindness in different ways. I, I, was the study able to pick any of this kind of stuff up? Yeah, so people from 144 different countries took part. Okay. Um, more people took part um, from from the UK. We did launch it on the World Service as well on the programme I do there. More people took part from the UK than from elsewhere. But we, we could look, we can look generally at, say, you know, different big areas of the world, big um, big continents, if you sort of mean. And some of the differences there were the barriers to what stopped people, what they felt stopped them being kind. So um, kindness levels were 
not very there wasn't that much difference between countries of how okay. kind people said they were and remember this 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 is people giving their own responses so they are in a way rating their own kindness but they're given a whole list of things and asked do you do which of these things do you do and people are very willing to say no to lots of them you know right. so plenty of people put no i never give money to charity so so, so but they might do something else it wasn't people just saying no oh let me show you exactly. and tell you how Look kind how I, am. I am yes yeah. okay yeah. so i think we can take people at their word because of the things people admit that they don't do, if you sort of mean. Yeah. Um, and, but the obstacles to kindness were really interesting. And so um, in the UK and, and in Europe, people um, felt the biggest obstacle to being kind was that they might be misinterpreted, um, followed by not having enough time. But it was very interesting that that came top um, whereas in the States, it was more about not having enough time and more about, and people worried more in the States about the impact of social media as well. This fear of being misinterpreted, that's really interesting, isn't it? What was that fear of? So so people said people could choose from those things and so they didn't say within that what their fear was. But um, looking, at, looking at other research on it, I think it's interesting that people's fear is that the person doesn't want their help and that, mm. or that they might have misread the situation altogether and yeah. got it wrong and that then they'll embarrass themselves and that then they'll look stupid. I think there's a big fear yeah. of looking stupid in front of strangers. Yeah. Um, and uh, that that puts us off doing things. And that is the biggest thing I've taken myself personally from looking at all this research is to think I am going to offer help in situations where I think I can do something really small, even if maybe I have got the situation wrong. I'm going to try anyway because... The worst that happens, I mean, they're probably not going to be angry. The worst that probably happens is that I've just, I just look a bit stupid yeah. and that that's okay. So the other day I was running, uh, running, I run a lot and I was running along the street and there was uh, a guy was trying to drive into a garage, but somebody had left one of those electric bikes just lying down across the street. And I was wondering why the guy in the car was sort of pausing and I'd, I'd run past slightly. And then I realized, like, I thought, of course, it's because that bike is in the way. And I thought I could, I could go, I could just turn around and move the bike for him so that the guy can drive in. And then I thought, but I look slightly stupid because I didn't realise in time. And then I, it means I've turned around and gone back. And that's a bit embarrassing, isn't it? And I thought, no, I'm not going to be embarrassed. It's still nice. It's still a kind thing to do. So yes, I had not realised quite fast enough what was going on. And that's often that I find the situation. I'm just too slow to work out what exactly what's happening. And so I did stop, turn around and moved the bike. And he looked really pleased. And then I was pleased do, and do you carried think on running. And it took probably 20 seconds yeah do you think you would have done that a couple of years no, ago no, before writing this book no no i would have there's lots of situations i can think of where i didn't um help because i thought i thought you know they might not want my help or i might have got yeah. this wrong and um you know there was one where i was i was um cycling to work and um and i cycled along and it was winter and it was really really cold and this um i saw on the other side of the big main road um with sort of you know double lanes on both sides and um, I saw a guy in flip-flops and shorts and he was going along the street quite fast shouting Lola, Lola and I thought I was just noticed because it was so cold and I thought oh that's brave brave outfit to be wearing in January I wonder what you know why he's doing that and then I carried on cycling and then loads of cars all screeched to a halt a bit further up and there was a little dog 
ran across the road and this woman in a raincoat was saying, calling the dog, saying, Poochie, Poochie, Poochie. And I was thinking, is her dog really called Poochie? Oh, and anyway, carried on, oblivious. And then, of course, about five minutes later, I work out. I thought the man was looking for a woman called Lola. He wasn't. He was looking for his dog and the dog had got out and that's why he was wearing shorts and flip-flops because he'd run out the door after the dog. But he'd gone the wrong way and the woman was calling the dog Poochie because she didn't know the dog's name but was trying to stop the dog being run over and was doing a kind thing. Yeah. And because it took me a while to do to work out all that, then I thought, shall I turn back? I was now five minutes further up the road. Shall I turn back and get the dog and put the dog in my basket and try and find the man? Then I thought, but the woman might think I'm trying to steal the dog because I don't know the man's name. And I'll just sort of say, oh, but there's this bloke up there. What if I've got it all wrong? And so I didn't help. Um, and I hope that the woman got the dog back to the man. The sphere of being misinterpreted. It reminds me of a conversation I had a couple of years back on this podcast with Professor Laurie Santos from Yale, oh. who's done a lot of the happiness. Uh, she's, she runs that happiness course at Yale. Mm. And uh, she said something in, in our conversation that... Just taking a quick break to give a shout out to Bond Charge, who are sponsoring today's show. Now, Bond Charge are a brand that is dedicated to helping you sleep better and live better. Now, sleep, as you will have heard me say on many occasions, is something that we really want to get right if we're going to be in optimal health. Better sleep means better relationships, more focus, better mental health, and better physical health. Now, one of the main problems for sleep these days is our light exposure, especially in the evenings. And at this time of year, as the evenings get darker, we have to be really intentional about the lighting in our homes if we want better and optimal sleep. Now, Bond Charge have a whole range of wellness products designed to help you sleep better. And my family and I use a lot of them in my house and have done so for years. Now, we all absolutely love their blue light blocking glasses, which I think are some of the highest quality out there. In my house, all the bedside lamps for myself, my wife and my children have Bond Charges amber low light bulbs in them, which have made a huge difference to all of our sleep quality. They also have other bulbs, red light bulbs and their full spectrum bulbs, which if you put them on after dark can be really helpful in not disrupting your sleep when you do need lights on in the evening. And as I say, at this time of year, these can be incredibly helpful. Now, Bonchard is currently having a Black Friday sale with a massive 25% off everything on their site until the 30th of November. All you have to do is go to bondcharge.com, that's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com and choose your favourite wellness products and the discount code will be automatically applied at checkout. That's bondcharge.com and the 25% of discount code will be automatically applied at checkout. Athletic Greens are also sponsoring today's show. Now, I get it. You already know that nutrition is important for your physical and mental well-being. And ideally, for sure, everybody would get all of their nutrition from real whole food. But I know from 21 years now of seeing patients that a lot of us struggle to consistently find the time to get the nutrition that we want. Busy schedules, poor sleep, too much stress, there's all kinds of reasons. That's why I'm a fan of good quality whole food supplements like AG1. One tasty scoop contains 75 vitamins, minerals, and whole food source ingredients, including a multivitamin, multimineral, prebiotic, green superfood blend, and more in one convenient daily serving. 
It helps support energy and focus, aids with gut health and digestion, and it also helps support a healthy immune system, something that is critical, especially at this time of year. Now, AG1 has been in my own life for over three years now, and I genuinely think it is one of the best whole food supplements out there. If you want to take something each morning as an insurance policy to make sure that you are meeting your nutritional needs, I can highly recommend it. So for listeners of the show, if you go to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more, you can access a brand new special offer where they are offering my audience a free one year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. Now, vitamin D is a crucial nutrient for our immune system. Many of us have suboptimal levels, especially at this time of year. So I think it's a really great offer to take advantage of. You can see all details of this special offer by going to athleticgreens.com forward slash live more. Our brain is is kind of often wrong. Like our predictions mm. are wrong about what are going to make us happy. And I think this this whole talking to mm. strangers piece, yes. like the research yeah. you mentioned, yeah. we think they're not going to want it. They're going to think we're intruding or whatever. But the reality is is that they love it. It makes us feel good and it makes them feel good. And I know uh, in my last book on happiness, Claudia, I wrote about some similar research, but from Professor Nick Epley in Chicago, oh, yeah. who did similar research on commuters. And they were put into all these different groups. And, you know, some of them was about literally, you know, do what you normally do. One group had to stop uh, and, and intentionally make conversation with someone else. And again, same sort of results, you know, everyone felt better. And those those feelings of well-being lasted the entire day. Mm. So it, our brain in many ways, it, can we say that it's tricking us? It certainly, don't. I guess I'm almost saying don't always believe your yeah. your initial thought. Like it's, it's probably always better just do the kind thing. Yeah. Take the risk, right? Take the risk. It is taking the risk because you might embarrass yourself and you might look a bit stupid, but you're never going to see them again. So at this point, you can just sort of say, oh, sorry, I sorry, got confused. You know, if you if you try and pick something up and give it back to the person and it wasn't theirs, then you just sort of say, oh, sorry, I thought it was yours. And that's yeah. it and move on. And so so that is something I have tried really hard to to do now because I was so struck by this finding that the main thing was that people feared being misinterpreted because that could be stopping loads of bits of kindness that are going on. Yeah. I guess we we think about Pinky and she walks around with these five you know single pieces of chocolate that are that are wrapped. If she was scared of being misunderstood she'd never give it to anyone yeah. probably right yeah. so i imagine sometimes yeah. it was misinterpreted people probably so i don't know might be suspicious and think what's this yeah, yeah you know is yeah. it safe to eat or whatever yeah. but ultimately yeah. she just goes out there and and yeah. does it and yeah, it's been doing it for risk. years right yeah. yeah 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 in that section you wrote about concentrated acts of kindness I think you were talking about Pinky and saying actually there's more benefit or certainly some yeah. kind of benefit when yeah. you do lots of acts in one day rather yeah. than spreading them out Yeah, the so there is a study where they got people to, to again, do various acts of kindness and they can choose what those are. And there's lots of these sorts of studies. But instead of spreading them across the week, they had to do the five, the five in one day. Um, and that gave people a more concentrated boost of well-being if you like and mm. and I think that's I think that's interesting and again that doesn't mean well don't don't do things on other days but maybe it is worth deliberately picking a day and thinking right well today I'm going to do five nice things what would be what would be nice to do 
and to just look out for those occasions? Of course, when we think of kindness, we can think about it, you know, with with our friends, with our work colleagues, with our partner, with our children, you know, with with any kind of interaction. But but bringing it really close to home, a lot of relationships, um, I find it under strain these days. As it's quite a stressful world these days, a lot of people don't have uh, time to spend intentional time, undistracted time, when we're not looking at emails or Instagram or whatever, with our partners, let's say. And I think there's something really quite powerful about even intentionally trying to do two or three hours a day of kindness with your partner. Totally, totally. And I, yeah. I, I think back, to, if I think about my wife and I, um, I can think back to a few months ago where I just thought, you know what, why don't you just in- intentionally say yes? Or every time... Like, you know, sometimes we can get stuck in certain patterns. Oh, you know, you do that. Or, yeah. you, you know, yeah. I don't know, but there, there was something quite powerful about going, no, you know what? Yes, I'll just make you a cup of tea. Um, yeah. Yes, I'll just bring you a glass of water. Um, what, whatever it might be, these are, these are, these are simple things. Yeah, exactly, but I actually yeah. think the significance yeah. and the impact is so much more than the actual few seconds or minutes it will take you to actually do that, right? Yeah. That yeah. we probably underestimate that. Yeah, no, I think we do. And in the kindness test, we, we asked people where they saw kindness the most. And people people did say at home, which was nice. But what was also really nice was the the amount of acts of kindness, oft, often at home and often from people they knew, that were going on. And so um, when we asked people when they'd, when they'd last received a kind act themselves, you know, 59% of people said it had been within the last 24 hours. Mm. And a quarter of those said it had been within the last hour. So um, when, when you deliberately think when was someone last kind to me it's, it's actually often more recent than people realize but again it's because negative things are always more salient so if, if someone's rude to you at work at the end of the day you're much more likely to remember that than the person who was nice to you at work and said something nice so therefore is it important given that there seems to be more kindness going on than we might consciously think a bit like gratitude where if you yeah. Do you know, is, is it important that we actually specifically have a practice, you know, whereby we can actually recall yeah. three kind things that happened to me today, that kind of thing? Yeah, I think that could work really well, just as the three, the gratitude works or the, the studies where people just think of three nice things at the end of the day um, and that that improves people's well-being. And that's all based on Martin Seligman's work. And, and you know, and that was something I found really helpful during lockdowns was just to think of the three things because also you then start looking for them at the during the day so I was thinking during lockdown of three nice things that happened during the day and because there was nothing else to do it was usually to do with going for a walk or um, eating some nice food but um, also um, you then start looking during the day and thinking oh that can be my nice thing and you can do exactly the same with kindness so you're looking out for three kind things which might be somebody being kind to you or might be something else you see in the street and somebody being somebody else being kind and that makes you start looking out for them I mean while I was writing the book I kept a a sort of kindness diary where I noted down things where I was either kind or thought about being kind and didn't do it um, or where people were kind to me or where I just saw them and the moment you start trying to notice, you notice more and more and it builds on itself. And so, and, so and I you, suggest people should be a kindness twitcher, you know, look out for it because we because the bad things are always going to be more salient and the world is not as bad as we think. I imagine by, I imagine by keeping that kindness diary, 
you're putting your spotlight and your attention yeah. intentionally yeah. on kindness, saying this is something I value, this is something I'm going to look out for, but also presumably you're going to do more acts of kindness because that's where you're putting your attention. Yes, it's almost priming you to do it and to yeah. be and to be ready to do it, which is also a thing you can decide to do. You can decide, well, the next time I see somebody who looks a bit, you know, lost or confused, maybe I'll say, you're all right, you know. Do you know where you're going? And do you want do you want a hand? Extroverts v introverts. Because I hear that and go, as an extrovert, that's a piece of cake for me. That is something I will do and it won't cause me any anxiety to approach someone yeah. and do that. Whereas yeah. I know some of my friends or people who um who consider themselves introverts will say, What talking to someone I don't know and asking <laughs> yeah. them yeah. fills them with fear, yeah. right? So I don't know, how, how yeah. does extrovert, the introvert yeah. play into kindness? Yeah, oh, it makes a big difference. So, so, you know, you were saying earlier, what is it, do we see differences with, between men and women? We, there was a slight difference in that we found in the kindness test that women did slightly more, reported slightly more acts of kindness than men did. So women were slightly kinder and lots of researchers has, has found that, but um, not didn't make nearly as much of a difference as um, personality type. Oh, really? So people who scored high on extroversion carried out more kind acts for people they knew and people they didn't know. Um, people who scored high on openness to new experiences and people who scored high on agreeableness. Now, the agreeableness one isn't very surprising because agreeableness kind of means niceness, kind of means kindness. Um, but it's interesting that extroversion did, did make a difference there. Um, and that may be because of the people who are extroverted not having that fear of approaching other people. And there was a really interesting study done with people with social anxiety, where um, there was a control group, but also one group who were um, told to do um, gradu very gradually do exercises that might gradually get them used to talking to strangers, say, or approaching people or, or, or doing something that would normally make them feel very, very anxious. And they very gradually built up to it. But a third group instead had to plan um, to be kind when they saw the opportunity or to plan some kind acts to do. So nothing was mentioned about socialising and their social anxiety um, actually dropped more by doing the kind acts because because they were doing something kind, they felt less nervous about what the response would be from the other person than if they just tried to talk to strangers. So if someone's listening to this right now, Claudia, and they say, okay, I'm with you, I, I need to... Do a bit more kindness. I need, I need a bit more kindness in my life, but I'm quite introverted. What specific advice would you give to them? So I say take, take it slowly, you know, start by doing some more kind acts for people you know, and then just look out for opportunities where you can be kind. And that could just be, um, uh, you know, when you're in the local shop buying something, just saying, how are you? As you, as you hand over your money. Because yeah. they're not going to say, how dare you ask that? They're just not, you know, the, the local shopkeeper is not going to do that. And to, but also to then not be upset and take it personally if they were too busy and didn't really hear what you were saying and didn't really answer. And yeah. the trouble is that people, people, and particularly people who experience big, strong feelings of loneliness will interpret it and studies show will interpret it more negatively if the person, if they don't get the response they wanted, which is usually just, that the other person was busy. And then it's also important to think whenever someone is mean to you, you know, what 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 is going on for them? You don't know what is going on for them at that moment. And yeah. maybe maybe they've just had some terrible news and, you know, maybe their partner left them that morning. We, yeah. we just don't know. And to sort of, to just sort of think everyone's, 
nearly everyone is doing their best. You know, everyone's doing their best here. It's very rare for people to do deliberately cruel things. Yeah. You know, obviously we hear about the ones who do, but it's, it is rare. I think a lot about intention, intention behind the words we're saying, intention behind the things that we're doing. And then where I'm, where I'm sort of landing at the moment with all this is that, of course, the impact of what you do is important, but the other thing we can really control is our intention, right? So yeah. if you're clear that you are doing this because you want to be kind, you almost need to get to a place, or not need to, I think it's helpful to get to a place where you don't mind what that response is. It can be <laughs> yeah. great, it can yeah. be um, indifferent, it can be someone misinterpreting it. Because I can't think of an exact example, but that has happened, you know, in the in the you know last few weeks, I'm sure, where something gets misinterpreted. Mm. And as I sit with it and kind of journal on it or think about it, it's like, no, are you, are you, can you look in the mirror, Rongan, and go, yeah, I'm okay with what I did. I know I had the right intention. And if I do, I'm like, I'm okay with that. I, I'm, I'm not responsible yeah. for how that person takes that. Yeah. Like, I don't know what's going on for them. I don't know how they've been conditioned. I don't know culturally if it's something different that they expect. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I kind of feel it, it, it's a hard place to get to, but I think it's a really helpful place that we can work towards it because you're less reliant then on people's responses. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And that's where self-compassion comes into yeah. it because what you're having there is self-compassion and not being self-critical and thinking, oh, I must have done that wrong then. But to think, well, I don't know what is going on for them, but I tried you know, I tried my best. And that if, and I always think with self-compassion, and there's, there's really good evidence that self-compassion is really protective of, of mental health. And so if people are very self-critical and if people, there's a fear of self-compassion scale, and if people score high on the fear of self-compassion scale, um, they are much more at risk of um, depression after that. And so it's really important to try to be kind to yourself. And we say to ourselves things far meaner than we would ever say to a friend in the same situation. Yeah. You know, if you made a mistake at work and the friend was to tell you about that, you'd say, well, you were probably, you know, really tired and you had too much on and, you know, it wasn't completely your fault and it'll be all right and you can remedy this and, you know, learn from it and it'll be okay. And we don't say that to ourselves. We say to ourselves, oh, you're a complete idiot and always will be. Self-compassion is huge. And I think it's something that many of us struggle with particularly in Britain. Like I, I've always, I, I feel that culturally here in the UK, kind of saying you're going to be compassionate to yourself or dare I say it, love yourself. Yeah, yeah. It makes people cringe a little bit <laughs> yeah. inside, yeah. right? And it probably used to with me, but I, I actually now, I am, I'm all in, I embrace it. Like I, I think it's really, really important. Um, you know, Professor Kristen Neff's been on the show before. She's right. done a ton of research yeah. on self-compassion for over 20 years, showing all kinds of benefits for our physical health, immune system, aging, all kinds of incredible things. In that chapter in the book, you wrote something that caught my attention, which was, have I got this right? You said something about when a celebrity says, this year I'm going to love mm. myself yeah. more, it yeah. makes you cringe a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Why do you think that is? 
I don't know, there's something about, I mean, you may be right about, it's interesting whether it is in this country or not, or whether it's more widespread, but this this idea of kind of, it's, that, it's partly that phrase, love yourself, isn't yeah. it? Because that's used as, that's been used as, as uh, you know, a, a way of, an, as an insult. You know, I can remember as a, a teenager, we sort of think, oh, I don't like him. He really loves himself, doesn't he? Oh yeah, he so loves himself, that guy. Um, yeah. And so we wouldn't like them for that. And so um, so I think it's partly that that phrase that we think that that this is wrong. Whereas actually, wouldn't it be nice if people liked themselves, loved themselves? Yeah. Um, and and then we know that, as you say, there are these these huge benefits from doing that and huge downsides from not, from not doing that. But I think people have a fear that they will, you know, become lazy um, and that they will then let themselves off for everything and never learn from their mistakes. And it yeah. doesn't mean any of those things. Exactly. You can absolutely still learn from your mistakes and hopefully hopefully do. And um, and there is good evidence that people do just learn from their mistakes. You know, some people, you don't, you, people don't tend to make exactly the same mistake yeah. again and again and again. Things change. Um, and so it is so important to try to just say, well, I wouldn't say this to someone else, would I? And I mean, there've been experiments where people write letters to themselves, you know, write a, a self-compassionate letter. So you think of something that happens and in your past and then write a letter as, to yourself as if you were writing it to somebody else about expressing, um, you know, sorrow for that thing or understanding about that thing that, that happened to them. Yeah. This whole piece on celebrities saying it more and more is something I've thought a lot about, actually. And my take on it, and it's, I don't, I really don't mean this to be controversial, um, but, I, but I kind of feel having spoken to and met a lot of people with significant public profiles, a lot of people, not everyone, a lot of people are deeply unhappy. Mm. And the way I would summarize it is I feel that a lot of them have a hole inside their heart that they thought the fame and the adulation and the success would fill. They get the fame, the adulation and the success and still find that hole in the heart is still there. So I think they get to the point where they then make that public, you know, mm. proclamation that I need to love myself more. Next year I'm going to love myself because actually I think if that person was my patient, that's kind of what I'd be saying to them. I think that if they could show themselves self-compassion, mm it probably would help them with their physical and mental mm. well-being. So I guess it's also, it's a bit like that, you know, as we as we mentioned at the start of this conversation, the, the wealthy public figure who donates to charity, we're like, yeah, we want to be a bit sceptical of that. It's kind of like, I, I kind of think maybe there's a similarity there. I think self-compassion really is that important, but I think the narrative on it needs to change in all of us and particularly maybe in the UK. Yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. And I think you're right, there is that ratchet of, Sometimes people have some success and then, but that's not quite enough because yeah. they always see there's some more who are more successful. And so, and I remember um, Matt Haig talking about this very honestly, saying that he always thought if he could just get one uh, one article published in a magazine when he was setting out, this would be so exciting and this would be it. And then it was kind of, oh, well, if I could, it did that. And then, oh, well, if I could, what about writing a book? That would be amazing, wouldn't it, to get your book published? But then... People don't just want their book published; they want their book to also be a bestseller. And of course, he's, he's you know has done all that many times. The rules change. Yeah, exactly. the rules change as you succeed. Yeah. yeah, and and you know if yeah. if you look on the outside about Matt Haig's so successful career, yeah, most authors would absolutely give their left arm to, to be as successful as him, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. not only books; he's then he has a film, yeah, it's that amazing. then gets a huge global film. And so, yeah. but yeah. I don't know. I'm not. I, I haven't spoken to Matt on this show for about three and a half years, I think, but I wonder what Matt's view on that now would be because 
it's it's all very well from the outside seeing that as successful, but I wonder what Matt himself yeah, it may makes. not necessarily feel yeah, that way potentially. for people. Yeah, yeah. Claudia, it, what's really interesting to me, I, I want to talk about kindness at work because mm. I thought this this was a really fascinating area. But before we get to that, I'm thinking your last book was on rest. We had a wonderful conversation all about rest, the importance of it. This book is on kindness. And in many ways, you're writing about things that society typically, the way we currently live, doesn't deem that important. It certainly doesn't doesn't put, it doesn't encourage us since we're kids necessarily at, you know, be kind, rest more. It's almost like, no, keep pushing, you know, work through, you know, work through the weekends, you know, don't stop, you know, hustle culture. Uh, there's no time for rest. I'll sleep when I'm dead. All these kind of things. Are you aware that your last two books are literally in many ways in, in kind of conflict with the prevailing societal narrative? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, I hadn't I hadn't thought of that as being in common between the two books. I thought of them as both being things where, topics where um, we think we know what that thing is, but haven't necessarily yeah. thought about it that much. I definitely thought about that being in common. But it's true. They are both things where <laughs> I, was, I was calling for people to value rest more, and now I'm calling for people to value kindness more. And rest too. That still matters as well, obviously. But um, And then when you rest more, but, yeah. I honestly believe, you, as, you, as I spoke about with the stress response, I think you are going to be kind more because you're going to be yeah. more yeah. rejuvenated, less stressed, more able to share and do yeah. things for others. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons also for being self-compassionate is, you know, if you if you don't look after yourself and we know that, uh, you know, a certain proportion of people will experience burnout that's, um, because they are giving so much to everyone else without looking after themselves as well and without wanting to ever put themselves first and that does matter as well. What's the difference between kindness... And people pleasing. Yeah, it's an interesting one that because sometimes and sometimes a, a distinction is made, particularly at work, people will say, Well, if you're if you're too kind at work, you'll just be a people pleaser and you'll just get walked all over and everyone will assume that, yeah, you'll you'll be the one who'll sort out all those things and that they don't need to. And and often I think the distinction then between kindness and niceness comes in as well. And there is the there is a sort of idea that being nice at work is a is a mistake. Um, mm-hmm. and that and there have been books written on this you know about you know sort of nice girls don't get the corner office and I think there's a slight distinction between between niceness and kindness but I think being kind doesn't have to mean being walked all over no. because sometimes being kind can be very hard um, and so say you know we were talking about ethical leaders and so for a leader to be kind a manager to be kind if you've got one person who is really is swinging the lead and not doing their work properly and leaving it to everyone else, then you could say, oh, well, it would be kind to just leave them doing that if that's what they want to do is not really do their work properly. But then that's not kind to the other eight people who are doing all their work all the time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like it's easy. um, And I think particularly for managers, it's not easy to, to be kind. Sometimes that can be really difficult. And the kindest thing will be to talk to that person who's not doing their work about why they're not, perhaps it's not the right job for them, perhaps they're not really enjoying it, perhaps mm. their role could be changed. But that's really difficult, having that conversation. So again, I'd say it's another situation where kindness isn't the soft, sort of easy option. No. Um, and if a leader is going to be set out to be ethical, then um, and they need to, the research suggests that they need to state that that's what they're doing, then that uh, is a risk in one sense, you know, because people will watch for that and people will be sort of saying, well, that wasn't very ethical what they did there, was it? Mm. And yet we know it can make such a difference. But there's still this idea that 
Um, to be successful, you've got to be, you know, hard nosed about it, uh, particularly in, say, business or sport mm. or, or politics, that it's got to be, you've got to be hard nosed. And that's not really what the evidence says. You yeah. know, the evidence on ethical leadership is showing us that ethical leaders are very, um, are more likely to be successful, in fact, um, and that the people who work for them are more likely to um, stay longer and there's less absenteeism um, and have higher job satisfaction, stay mm. in those jobs and all, all those things that are really important to do. There's an interesting um, uh, study done by um, an American um, psychometrics expert called um, Joe Folkman, where he did, um, he got many, many thousands of people to do 360 degree feedback about their bosses. And um, and he'd asked them lots of different things about what their bosses were like, um, including how effective they were and how... um, uh, nice and um, kind they were and he found that um, and how likeable they were and he found it was so rare for bosses to be rated as effective and not likeable that there was a one in 2,000 chance of that happening so basically the likeable bosses were so much more likely to also be rated as effective wow. bosses um, and so it's not the case that if you're likable, your staff will all just, you know, muck about and take the piss and, and not do their stuff. They are actually much more likely to work with you if you are being kind to them. Yeah, I, I think this is so important that we show people that actually you can win and be kind. You can be successful and be kind. It's not either or. In fact, I'd argue that being successful by being kind, it's going to feel better anyway. Maybe you can do it the other way, but I don't think it's going to feel good. And are people going to like you? They're going to want to work for you, going to want to stick around. Highly unlikely, we think, just on a human level, but obviously you're you're sharing research, which has actually looked into this. In that section in the book, you you talk about these two quite powerful examples, I, I felt, where a boss has really, potentially at short term expense, Yeah supported one of their staff members, which has not only been a nice thing to do, the right thing to do, in the long term, it's also had huge upsides for for their business, right? Yeah. And they're really extraordinary, these examples. And they were from the, um, on All in the Mind, my Radio 4 show, every couple of years we run the All in the Mind Awards and people can nominate the person who's made a massive difference to their mental health. And and people send in all these amazing stories, thousands of amazing stories. And we've had quite a few finalists where they were about bosses who were kind, who were so kind. And um, one of them, I remember, uh, he was the boss of a, a shoe shop, a sort, a sort of fancy shoe shop. And um, a uh, young woman was working for him. She'd worked before university at the shoe shop. And then she went away to university and was having huge mental health difficulties and massive anxiety and, and real difficulties. Had to leave university and come home for a while, but went back to work in the shoe shop. And she would end up um, serving, trying to serve a customer and then having a panic attack and having to go to the office in the basement. And in some shifts, she she was spending seven out of eight hours in the basement. And the boss was saying that many people would have just sent her hope, said, or said, well, you, you can't be here today. Come, you know, you're clearly not coping. Come back tomorrow. But he was absolutely determined that he would help her get through this, not by forcing her to stay on the shop floor, but by allowing her to be in the office and trying to help her calm down. And then saying when she felt ready, she could go back to the shoe shop. And this would happen for days and days and days at a time. Mm. And he's trying to run a shoe shop here. And this must have been really difficult because then there wasn't just, you know, he's one staff member down. And yet she, uh, but she, through his help, she, she, did recover and then was able to work there 
again and continue working. And he said the reason he did it was because he knew she was a really, really brilliant worker and that she was so brilliant at her job and uh, that um, he'd found himself in difficult situations in the past and really wished somebody had been really, really understanding because he knew how brilliant she'd be again. Wow. And so so they are examples where it is it is worth it in the end because what, what people get is this work, somebody who will work, you know, really well for them and work with them. And it also matters in terms of small things as well. So there are these things called organisational citizenship behaviours, which are the things people do, for example, in an office where like putting printers, uh, putting paper in the printer or um, watering the plants or just doing those little things that keep an office going and that make make things work for other people. Um, you know, noticing that something needs needs replacing or that something needs doing. And if people are feel that if people are unhappy, there's good evidence that if they feel their bosses don't value them, in the end they stop doing those things because mm. they haven't got to do those things. Yeah. You haven't got to do that for someone else. They still do their job, but they do the absolute minimum because they don't feel valued in this workplace. So why should they think, well, why should I? You know, they don't value me, so why should I do this? If you've got a workplace where you can make everyone feel valued, they will do all those things. And those little things make a massive difference to how everyone else feels about it. And that leads to lower, lower absenteeism, higher levels of job satisfaction the fact that people go around doing those little things yeah, you feel yeah. part of something together i, I really love that example uh, there's there's many more in that chat so if, if people get the book in it they can, they can read them that one about supporting someone who's really struggling i just want to pause on because i, I think there'll be some bosses of companies or teams listening or watching this right now who may have a team member or a staff member maybe not showing up or struggling because so many people are struggling. Yeah. It's going to happen in most yeah. teams. And I hope that if they are thinking of terminating something or moving on, just to hopefully just take a pause and go, actually, that there is another way. Of course, all business requirements are different. I understand yeah. that. And it's difficult. I'm not saying I'm not saying it was easy. And these examples, you know, they weren't easy. There was another one that was in a, a nursery in um, Scotland and um, she took on a member of staff knowing the member of staff was having um, serious mental health difficulties and made adjustments to make that, to make her able to work there and says, you know, the, the woman is so pleased that there was somewhere that she could work that would do all this, that she is such a devoted and loyal yeah. member of staff. And of course, it's really difficult for people, especially when business is going through really tough times at the moment. And I can imagine people listening and thinking, yeah, that's all very well, but um, I can't be a member of staff down. But it is the toss-up between, well, but you may have this long-serving member of staff who will then stay with mm. you a long time and be, be really, really good just for you putting up with the temporary bit somehow of managing this situation. Yeah, I mean, if we, if we just get to that first case, right, so um, where the lady would spend seven or eight hours potentially sometimes in the basement, right? So one scenario there is that the boss, you know, maybe in a really kind and, and authentic way, says, look, I'm, I'm really sorry, but... Okay, option one is they can be really mean, okay, you're not up to the job yeah. and fire them. Okay, yeah. option two might be very compassionate. They say, listen, I understand you're struggling, but I just I, I just can't keep this business op op operational yeah. with this. You know, contact me in a few months if you're feeling better. You know, that, that may be an option. Yeah. But this option, which sounds as though it was the hard option, yeah. What, what I find interesting as I, as I play it out is, first of all, for that individual employee, wonderful, yeah. right? Supported boss, 
who has been there with them, when they're better, as they get better, they're going to be there. They're probably going to stick around in that company forever or certainly for a long time. Less inclined to take the mickey, yeah. you know, be really, really conscientious. That's one benefit. Two, the other people in that business, seeing that, I can be like, God, that's really impressive. What a nice guy or what a nice lady yeah. that, that yeah. they supported. Yeah another team member, well, I want to stick around here. So there's benefits there. But also I think the other benefit, which I think sometimes we don't think about, and and I'm very passionate about this because in my book on happiness culture, I wrote about um, the three legs of what I call the core happiness stool. What are the three things we need for happiness? And one of them is alignment. So when our external actions match with our inner values. And that boss, right, I think it was a male boss, I think you said. So they may have a partner. They may have children. Like, if we start to imagine, like, yeah, I could get rid of that staff member and crack on and my business can be thriving and I can be making money or whatever. Like, can you, you know, can you look at yourself in the mirror that evening? Can you, you know, look at your kids and go, wow, if that was you when you're older. Mm. Do you know what I mean? I think that yeah. whole alignment piece is yeah. really also important. We can make the business case. Yeah. But on a personal case, like we all want to yeah. be kind yeah. people, I think. Yeah. And we've been talking about what the benefits of kindness are. So what were the benefits to him? They will have been benefits yeah. to him of doing this really, really kind thing. And that he will have felt good about. And in fact, he was, you know, slightly surprised to be a, a finalist in these awards. He was sort of <laughs> thinking, well, I, I, you know, I just did the right thing. We're getting, and he he was almost sort of saying, I, I, you know, I did what anybody would do. And we're going, this wasn't what anyone would do, though. Yeah. It, it isn't. Not everyone would do that. Yeah. And and he did. But he just he just said he thought it was the right thing to do and that it wouldn't benefit her to just be off. Uh, you know, he knew it was good for her having this thing to come to each day. Yeah where there were supportive people who were nice, even if she couldn't really do much work when yeah. she got there. And he didn't want to abandon her at home to recover on her own. I mean, I love that. What a legend. Honestly, I, I love hearing stories like that. You also mentioned kindness in sports. And I wonder if you could share that story of that triathlete and what yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's a, a triathlete called Diego Mentrida. And he was um, doing his you know professional triathlete. He was in the triathlon. And he was um, about to come in. Uh, he was coming fourth. And he noticed that um, suddenly he seemed to be third. So suddenly he's in line for a bronze medal. But he noticed that the one who was in front of him, he couldn't see anymore and he couldn't work out where he was. And you can see this in the photos. He, he stops, he turns around and he realises the the other guy's taken a wrong turn. Wrong turn. And so he does the fair, right, lovely kind thing, which is he stops and he waits for the other guy and says this way and lets the other guy cross the line before him. So he lost on he lost out on getting a medal by being so kind. So some people might say, oh, well, and he was not a winner, was he? You know, he he lost. But he was going to lose anyway. He was going to come, not lose, you know, he was going to come forth. He was not going to get a medal. But in the end, they gave him a joint bronze medal because it became well known what he did. He did get, you know, a huge amount of praise and he's had the joy of knowing he did the right thing and did a really good yeah. thing. Alignment. And, you know, it's exactly, yeah. So he feels good about it. His reputation, if you like, is hugely enhanced, I'm sure. I think also you can't hide from yourself, right? So in those quiet moments, lying in your bed at night, like you know what you've done, like all of us, mm. like we all know, yeah. have we behaved authentically? Have we yeah. been sneaky? What, you know, would that third place have been meaningful to him? 
you know. Yeah, exactly. He so didn't know he didn't deserve, he didn't deserve and it. And he probably you know? got, I mean, I don't know that what happens next, but, you know, I'm sure his sponsors he were... He became very well known, so yes. Were delighted. I think sponsors probably were delighted. Yeah. Kind of a work, um, if we just stay there for a moment. You say in the book that firing someone can sometimes be an act of kindness. Yeah, yeah. So if somebody is you know, really, really not suited to their job, then I do know bosses who've said that they think that, you know, the kindest thing is to do is to let them go because they're going to be unhappy forever doing this job. Now, of course, you can try first to work out, well, why are, why are they unhappy? Why is it not going to work? But if somebody is really, really struggling and, uh, you know, clearly miserable all the time and really, really stressed, then to help them find that there's some other work that might be better for them um, that there may be, it could be a different role in the same place even, um, could be the kind of thing to do than to try and, you know, hassle them into doing something that they just can't do. Yeah. I think also, I guess what I'm learning and also one of the reasons that I was so fascinated by that part of the book was, you know, how does kindness play out at work? And there was a, there was a, there was a section you were writing about where, it's not just about shying away from difficult decisions. It, there, there's, a, there's a degree of honesty. Like sometimes yeah. the kind thing to do is to is to make a difficult decision. It may be that someone doesn't like yeah. what you've done, but if you're doing it with, I think you wrote transparency, objectivity and fairness, that's also kind. Like being kind is not necessarily sugarcoating something, yeah. kicking a problem down the road, being kind. Like it's... I presume it's the manner in which you do it, potentially, that determines yeah, yeah, it's kind. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's got to be done kindly. It's got to be done, as you say, with transparency, with with authenticity um, and with, with honesty and being clear about it. And that's why kindness isn't soft. That's why it can mean having really, really difficult conversations and bringing up difficult subjects and difficult conversations. Um, and, of course, it can mean, you know, may, maybe you have to cut the number of staff you have in order to keep the business going to mm. because of difficult times because maybe there are fewer customers now and everyone's going to lose their job if you don't if you don't do that. Now of course that's very different from just saying oh well, let's just make cuts and everyone else can work twice as hard and um the boss thank you and I'll take all the profits. That's different obviously. Yeah, I think people can take a lot more than we think when we're honest. Like if you said to your team guys listen, we're really struggling here. I I can't you know, hypothetical scenario, I can't keep all 10 of you on. Yeah. Right? Two people, are gonna, like all the two people that he he or she decides to let go, I, I, I'm i thinking they would much prefer an honest conversation saying, listen, you've been great. In any other circumstance, we wouldn't be we'd be doing this, but I just simply can't afford to keep everyone on. And because of A, B and C, you're one mm. of the ones that has to get, like, Again, I understand it, it, it will be painful. I understand there are issues there, but honesty is also kindness, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And sometimes if there are situations where people might be able to be the ones to, you know, to choose whether to volunteer to say have redundancy, then it might well be that what you didn't know was that there was somebody who's who's has actually always slightly wanted to do something different. And and this might be, then be their chance to use their redundancy money to retrain, yeah. to do the thing they've always wanted to do. But if you don't raise that conversation, you don't realise that actually there's somebody who'd quite like to yeah. have this chance to do something different. Yeah. You mentioned Gareth Southgate in this section as an example of someone who I think has had a huge degree of success whilst also being kind. Yeah. And it's interesting that he's been open about that as well, because that is not seen as the 
traditional macho football way to even talk about kindness at mm. all. And yet he has said openly that this is part of his uh, success and that he wants to be open and honest with people and transparent and, you know, talks about that and, you know, seems to to walk the talk. Yeah, I, I think to recall, Gareth came on this show a couple of years ago. Yeah. And um, one of the things I, I, I think I remember him saying was that I think if he ever got dropped as a player with no explanation, he, he found it really hard. And so I think, I think from recollection that, you know, let's say with the England squad, if there's 22 people in it and there's only 11 who can actually play, I think he takes it very seriously to tell the people who are not in the reasons and he sits them down. So that is kind. He sits them down properly. He doesn't just do it like group text, right? That's it, guys. You guys are in, you guys are out. No, I think he takes it really seriously. Right. And I really respected that. I thought, that's so wonderful because all 22 players who are in that squad are going to be fantastic footballers. Yeah. And then he's having a difficult conversation with 11 of them. Yeah, yeah. who are already very, very successful in their own yeah. right. And actually, yeah. so, so, so with that in mind, is there a culture shift? happening with respect to kindness when we see the leaders like Gareth Southgate and others practicing kindness talking about the importance of it do you do you are you hopeful I'd, that things I'm, are changing I mean, I, I'm hopeful I'd like to think there is and I, I think it's interesting that he thinks he he can talk openly about that and and do those things is great and I think yeah I think there are some leaders who are talking about that more on the other hand we know that there are also of course you know companies who are um, not being nice to their employees yeah. and who are employing people on, you know, very low wages on zero hours contract and not being fair with them and, you know, timing them going to the loo and things like that. So um, I think it would be, I, I'm not going to pretend that all companies are suddenly kind because I, no. I don't think that's the case. But I think it is it's really good when you see someone like him who is talking about it and then maybe that make others think, well, maybe we can do this more kindly. But that's why a book like yours is potentially so important, right? Because... It's by raising awareness of something that we all kind of know feels good, but raising awareness of it, showing them hard scientific research to show the benefits physically, mentally, emotionally, for companies, for business, right? That is just contributing to the elevation of kindness in society, right? So there'll be someone who reads that book or hears this conversation who, a bit like me this morning, like, I think I'm a pretty kind person, but... I don't think for a long time I've ever paid for someone's coffee before. Do you know what I mean? But it was yeah. it was reading that book that I thought I just thought, yeah, why not? Why just do it? So, yeah. and that was just a few pages that inspired me to make a positive change. So, hopefully, that's going to be a lot of people getting inspired just to do a little bit more kindness in their own lives, isn't it? I mean, I would love that if that were the case because. It is a thing where I think we want to do it, you know, and I think we are, um, well, we, we, we know that we have, you know, evolved to cooperate and this is why humans are so um, successful. They cooperate with each other and that involves kindness. Mm. So in a way, and we know that there's lots of experiments where toddlers will be really kind, you know, we want to be kind, but sometimes it's difficult to do that. And so what I want to do is give people the evidence to say, you know, we want to be kind. That is your urge and you're right to have that urge because look at all this evidence it will even get you the, the things you want. It will improve relationships. It will improve mental health. It can improve your workplace. So why not do it? Is kindness, I mean, you kind of touched on it there a little bit about our sort of tribal origins. Is it innate to who we are? Like is, is kindness, are we kind people or is it something we have to practice and develop? 
you know, that, that, I'm really fascinated by I think we can, we can practice and develop and become kinder. So it is something we can, and we can develop more empathy for people. And it's like a skill that you can learn and you can improve at. But I think we already have the predisposition to do that. And so if you look at these experiments with, you know, two-year-olds and people will think of terrible twos and, you know, two-year-olds just have tantrums and, and never care about anyone else. And yet there's these lovely experiments. I really love the videos of these where um, they'll have like a, uh, an adult who's trying to um, carry a whole pile of books and open a cupboard door. And uh, and even two-year-olds will go and open that door for them very often. And then they have it so the two-year-old is playing with a game they really like and they will abandon the game in order to open the door. And then they have it so the two-year-old is playing with a game they like and has to climb over obstacles to open the cupboard door. And many will still do it. Yeah. You know, they want to be kind. They have been called indiscriminate altruists. They'll be kind to, to anyone. It's not just because there's something in it for them. So they'll be as kind to other toddlers as to adults and adults might give them more wow. stuff. So they will be kind to them too. Now, obviously not all the time because we have all seen those tantrums. But they can do it and, and want to do it. Um, and I think if you, and if you look at how the brain's reward system works when it comes to kind acts and altruism, we, we, can, we can see that the brain rewards us when we are kind. So uh, I do believe that we have, we have evolved to, to be kind and to be rewarded for doing that. And mm -hmm. so it is, which is why it feels good when you are kind, because our our brains are, if you like, built that way. We've evolved to to have that reward system that makes us feel good when we're kind, because being kind is so useful to survival, because yeah. it is, because being kind, kindness builds relationships. Relationships help people survive. Yeah. In terms of relationships, one of my favourite chapters uh, was, was the chapter about to be kind, you've got to be able to understand the views of others. I'm sure everyone listening to this, Claudia, at some point recently or in the past has struggled to understand the views of someone else and because of that has struggled to be kind. So a big part here is empathy, of course. So I wonder if you, we could start off by you describing, you know, what what is empathy? How do you see it? Yeah, so I see empathy as as being able to see things from another person's perspective and being able to understand how they might be feeling about that, where they're coming from with that and 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 why they feel that way in a sense. And so I think, and that also, even if you disagree with somebody really strongly about a particular issue, it doesn't mean you would disagree with them about everything. Uh, and if you, if, I think sometimes it's useful to think when you see somebody say something you, you think is completely idiotic online, that um, if your friend said the same thing, you'd probably be much more forgiving of them. But they're probably really nice in other parts of their life too. Yeah. Now, some things are, you know, inexcusable, like the, you know, the, the I've been listening to the, the recent uh, podcast series about, um, you know, people uh, trolling the um, survivors of the uh, bombing at the uh, arena in Manchester and that, you know, people accusing the survivors of making it up and, and so on. And obviously that is, you know, completely appalling and uh, uh, such a shocking thing to do to people who've been through so much already. And, and it is very, very difficult to understand. But with things that are lesser than that, if they just have a ridiculous view on something, it may be that everything else about them is is nice. Yeah. There, there was a study you quoted in the book about something to do with, it was in the section on in-groups and out-groups. And I think it was about... Manchester United fans and I don't know if you remember the study or not about whether if you, you're more likely to help and be yeah. kind to someone yeah. Yeah. 
if they're part of your tribe. Yeah, so there's interesting research done on 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 bystanders and when people will and won't help. And in fact, lots of people will help and, and there's become lots of sort of myths about the bystander effect thinking that people won't. But when they did this experiment, if people were wearing a Manchester United shirt and they knew, and the others, the people who were passing by, they staged things basically in the street yeah. and see who would help, people were more likely to help if they were also a Manchester United supporter because they sort of sort of thought, oh, well, there's my person. You know, I've got something in common with them. And people, we do like people who have something in common with us. And even if they're, you know, really ridiculous things, like people like people who have the same birthday as them better than average. And we all know birthdays are random. You know, it doesn't matter if someone's got the same birthday as you, but we sort of think, oh, isn't that nice? And we look for those things in common with us. And we show favouritism, more than discrimination towards the uh, the people we see as not in our group, it's more often that people show favouritism towards their own group, which of course can result in discrimination in the same way, because if you show favouritism to people just like you and give them all the jobs, then that is discriminating against the people who are not exactly like you. Yeah. You, you, you make a really powerful case at the start of that chapter that we've all got the capacity to be empathic, right? Empathy is within us. I think you, you mentioned some brain scans, didn't you, where um, if you're being pricked with a needle, the same region in mm. the brain lights up as if you're yeah. watching someone else. Yeah, we really can. We really can imagine what that's like. Yeah. That's yeah. empathy, isn't it? Yeah, which is empathy. Yeah. And what's really interesting there is that if you, and of course, some people have to learn, say doctors, you know, have to learn to, to actually uh, step back from some of that empathy in order to be able to do the things they need to do to people that might be painful mm. um, in order to, you know, make them better from things. And so there's an interesting study, <coughs> excuse me. So there's an interesting study where they um, uh, push push a, um, a pin against uh, someone's arm or a um, like a cotton bud. And you'll see in the brain a different response to that in most people because they will, as you, as you say, they'll see the pain of the of the prick with the pin um, and not with the cotton bud. But if you do that with um, most doctors, they will not um, see that. There will not be a difference because they've managed to lose, um, they've managed to you know step back from that empathy of the person having the pin wow. put in them because you need to. Because otherwise, how would you ever give somebody an injection? Because you're sticking a, a really painful needle yeah, sometimes I, in someone's arm. So you know I don't know if you relate to that. I do. And I actually wonder if that is when that study was and whether that's changed mm -hmm. because, but when did I leave medical school? Uh, I think 2001. And as a junior doctor, you know, you're, you, you, back then we would take bloods on patients. And sometimes I remember in Scotland when I was doing gastroenterology, when you were on call for the weekends, like the first part of your weekends was doing all the bloods that were needed for those gastro wards and oh man I got I've not thought about this in such a long time <laughs> Claudia but it could sometimes take you four hours because there were loads of people to do we didn't have phlebotomists so that the junior doctor would do it all and actually a lot of the the patients on those wards would have very very narrow thready type veins which were really difficult you you skill up very quickly yeah but Obviously, you're you're you got to do it quite fast. You're doing though, it. Well, you, you you try to, and you yeah. know when you're starting, you can't do it that fast because you're learning. But basically, you do it so much that I can imagine you at some point just switch off from actually a needle penetrating the skin. Whereas a lot of junior doctors these days, um, there's a lot more phlebotomists now. So I think 
junior doctor these days yeah, are taking less, less yeah. blood. So I just wonder yeah. how that yeah. might be different these yeah. days. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that there's a, there's a, a, a very new study where they got people to um, sew up very, do, do stitching on a cut on a very realistic arm. Mm. So uh, it's clearly not a real arm because it's not joined to anybody. And the um, doctors were able to do that very easily. Um, and many of the, and then the non-doctors found that really hard because it does look like you're sewing someone's arm and they found that much more more difficult whereas the doctors you know have to step back to have less squeamishness to you know how would you ever cut someone open mm. even though they're asleep cutting someone open is you know to most of us, us non-doctors is a yeah. you know terrible thought that, that example um you just gave about the the families of um, was it the families of the people who were yeah. uh, injured yeah. or, or yeah. killed in the in yeah. Manchester bombings? Yeah. I wasn't aware of that actually. But since you said it, it's been playing in my mind a little bit because a phrase that I think about a lot, which has really helped me um, personally in terms of my levels of happiness and contentment is if I was that other person, I'd be doing exactly the same thing as them. And 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 the and the, the the kind of idea behind that is if I was that person with their childhood, with their upbringing, with all the bullying experiences they had, with the toxic boss they had when they were 18, you know, if I had had their lives, mm. I would be acting in exactly the same way as them. And as hard as it, it might be sometimes, I found it very helpful because in every situation, no matter how bad, and it gets harder and harder with the more extreme situations. Like I hear that and go, the people who are trolling, what are their lives like? What is their understanding of the world? What information have they been exposed to that has meant that they have that view? And just to be clear, I'm not excusing it. I'm not mm. saying it's okay. I'm simply saying you know, you, you write about what what was it in that chapter? You write about the um, the parents of uh, a young lad, a twelve year old, who got killed in the IRA bombs in Warrington. Yeah, who's, who's, maybe who's could forgiving. you share that story? Yes, who, yes. Yeah. So, so Colin Parry set up, you know, a whole uh, there's a whole foundation set up, um, and has forgiven people and brought sides together and been absolutely determined. You know, the, the father who lost his son has been absolutely determined that doesn't want this to happen to other people and that what you need to do is bring all sides together and and you know had endless talks in in Northern Ireland with people he knew were on the side um that had killed his son and was just determined that forgiveness is the only way forward with this um and that he had to use this for good as as you know many people do I mean that's such an incredible story because I imagine most people would go you know what I can see other people's perspectives up to a point, there are certain things where it's a no-go. And again, it's not for me to say, who, you know, where, where people should draw a line. But I think that's very powerful um, to hear a story where their, their son was murdered at 12, essentially, and they're able to forgive and move on. Um, I, I once spoke to a, a lady called Edith Eager on this show who was taken to Auschwitz when she was 16 years old and she was there for many years and her parents were murdered within a couple of hours of getting there. And I spoke to her at the age of 93 a couple of years ago, a wonderfully vibrant, compassionate, forgiving human being. She's forgiven. Like, and we think, and I, and I wonder, and, and it makes me think a little bit about your, your chapter on heroes, right? Like we often imagine that, oh, you know, I could never do that. 
But maybe we could. Maybe if we were, <laughs> I hope no one's in those scenarios, just to be really clear. But I don't know, you hear those, you go, you know, Edith will say she's nothing special, right? Yeah, and then we all think, but you're amazing. Yeah, yeah. you're doing this amazing Exactly, thing. so I wonder, yeah. coming back to this innate capacity to be kind, to be compassionate, to forgive, maybe we've got a lot more kindness and forgiveness in us that we might think. Yeah, people can, and people can do extraordinary things. And there are so many tales of people forgiving things that, you know, feel unforgivable to the rest of us where we where we do it's very common to then say oh, well I couldn't do that myself and and this is what happens with the the heroes so I talk about all sorts of people who have done such a kind act that they um uh you know saved someone else's life often at, at expense to themselves and they will always invariably say in the research they say I only did what anyone would have done and yet we think well you didn't did you because you did the special thing or you know you there were loads of people on the platform and you climbed down and got helped the woman who'd fallen off the platform everybody else didn't climb down yeah. onto the live rail and did that so you did do something different but that actually seeing heroes as something special might make the rest of us less likely to do it because we sort of think well that, I, I wouldn't be able to do that and instead that maybe we should think well maybe I could maybe if there is a situation um, and one piece of research suggested there might be a situation five times in your life where you can do something heroic to decide in advance who I am going to do it. You know, I'm, 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 I'm going to step forward and be that person. And of course, we'll never know till those things happen. Yeah. Really, really powerful. Really, really powerful. Um, empathy. I, I, as I say, I really enjoyed that section because I, I feel it's what the world needs more of. Um, you know, I, I, you know, it's interesting, Claudia, back, what, what were you we now? 2020, it's 2021. I did the London marathon for the first time. And although the event because of an injury didn't, didn't go very well at all for me personally, it was at a time where if you went on social media, you would think the world was very divided, <laughs> right? Yeah. If you switched on the news, which I actually don't do, but you, you would your 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 view of humanity might be pretty poor, and then I saw all I saw at the London Marathon. I just thought this has restored my faith in humanity. This is strangers supporting strangers, um, people baking cakes and snacks and coming to give them to runners who they've never met before. <laughs> people just cheering other people on, and I thought, God, this is who we are. Humans are naturally kind, compassionate. They want other people to succeed. The London Marathon and, and many other events around the world will, will demonstrate this. But if we venture online sometimes, we don't think that's the case, do we? Yeah, no, and that is true. And there is, you know, there are loads and loads of horrible, horrible things going online and people behaving in a way that they wouldn't in everyday life. And somebody quite well known was telling me the other day that his email is is not hard to find. And he gets people saying horrible things to him online, but has actually only ever had one horrible email even though people could find that and could do that. that. That there is something about social media that makes people think, oh, well, I'll just say what's in my head at this moment in the way that the rest <laughs> of us might shout at the TV, kind of, oh, how ridiculous. Yeah. Instead, they're writing, oh, how ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and so, but it's just kind of keep it in your head. Um, it's like my grandmother used to say, you know, if you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Um, so um, why not just not 
not say those things. But at the same time, there are nice things on social media as well. Yeah. I, I do think that's really important. So there are all these people making all these, you know, really good memes and uh, videos and stuff just to entertain other people. Um, and there's also, you know, there's loads of, um, I mean, there are loads of feeds of kind acts where you can deliberately do yeah. kindness scrolling. And there have been experiments looking at, like, instead of doom scrolling, looking at kindness scrolling and, and what nice things you can see. But also there are loads of people helping each other and supporting each other and people with really rare mm. diseases are able to get support from other people who've been through the same experience of something really rare that that wouldn't have happened before without social media. So I think it is a question of, in a way, trying to use our power to to follow people who are nice and, you know, not mm. give attention, a bit like not giving attention to the toddlers. You know, don't engage with or look or even maybe comment on the ones who are doing the bad stuff because they get, you know, we know yeah. the, how the algorithms work. If they're doing bad stuff, even if you argue with them, they'll get higher. They're yeah. getting the attention. Comment gives it the so engagement. The Algorithm attention. says this is important, exactly. pushes it up. Exactly, exactly. But yeah. we could start following when somebody gives a reasonable nuanced argument. Just think, even though you may think, well, it's slightly dull, isn't it? But it's reasonable and nuanced. Isn't that what we need more of at the moment? So follow them, deliberately follow them and you can use your tiny bit of power if everyone does that, people will start, the, the sensible people will start to they, be this higher is, up. I mean, Claudia, this is honestly the idea behind this podcast, right? G genuinely, the um, the prevailing narrative is, and you touch on this in your book as well, actually, the prevailing narrative, it's got to be short, people haven't got attentions anymore. It, it, it's just simply not true in my experience. <laughs> like yeah. it's, we do long yeah. conversations, hour and a half, two hours, and I've said it before, but as they've got longer, they've become more and more popular. I think people do want long-form, authentic, nuanced content. The thing I struggle with on a personal level is we, you know, we have these, I, I hope, beautiful, long conversations where there is nuance and perspective and context. And then because on Instagram, you're only allowed to post a one-minute video, really, yeah, for a reel, a bit. Yeah. we, you know, we'll pull, um, the, t the team will pull four or five short clips to try and promote the content yeah. within the podcast. And, and sometimes I think, you know, is that the right thing to do? Because, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to give the long form concerts, but I'm okay with it because I kind of feel... You want to take people somehow to the long I kind of like, you? look, this How is trying to give you a snapshot. It? Yeah. Um, but again, and I, and I <laughs> we purposely put on every clip, please note, this is a short clip from a nice yeah, minute conversation. Yeah. To get the full context, yeah. please watch the full conversation and the amount of people who ignore it or don't read it and still get triggered and comment on that. It is, it's, and I get it, right? I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm just, I just find it interesting to observe and go, how do you navigate this? It's, it's pretty hard, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think it is. And I think there aren't easy answers to it, you know, and maybe there might be more regulation about things, but that won't, that, that's always going to be about the most serious things. So that's not going to stop people just being, being, Horrible, yeah. if you like. And the trouble is that just as I was talking earlier about, you know, if someone's rude to you at work, that's the bit that's salient. It's the same with something online. So people will remember the one the one nasty comment they got. And we all do it, you know. So people will remember the, you know, the bad reviews their book's got. They, they can tell you the exact sentence that somebody said and not all the good ones. So, you know, it, unfortunately, the negative is salient and we need to try to not let it be. Um, and one one um, person I know is an, an, uh, an actor and she told me that she was taught at drama school, you must um, 
half the negative things that people tell you. So if you get a bad review or somebody says something horrible about you, you must think, oh, I'm just going to halve the impact of that. They only half half meant that, if you like. But also half the good stuff as well. Half the praise too. Yeah, and that's a good it approach. Keep yeah. it all a bit more neutral, yeah, exactly. a bit more measured. Yeah. Just going back to empathy for a minute. Um, there's a couple of bits in that chapter which I thought were super, super interesting. Number one, which this idea that empathy is not always a good thing. Too much empathy can sometimes be problematic. You mentioned maybe the case of doctors, potentially where you've got to be able to shut off so you can actually yeah. do your job, especially in the emergency acute situations, I think. But there was this, I can't remember the term you used for it, around charities, whereas um, it was it was if we have too much focus on an individual. Yeah, yeah I yeah. found that really interesting. Yeah, it's Could you explain ident- it? The identifiable victim effect. So this is the idea that if um, you may hear about one case, say, of one child who needs a particular operation because they're really suffering. And so uh, you may then have, and I can completely see why families, individual families would do this, but uh, one child may get, you know, there may be a lot of publicity, say, about this case and the fact mm. that, that needs that this child needs it. And that may then tempt people to think, well, this child should go to the top of the list. And of course, there are the other 11 children on that list yeah. who are also waiting for their operations and who are presumably being done in order of need um, and that they're, wait, they're waiting. And so by the focus on one, then does that does that leave others behind and put others in different ways? Now, of course, the, the upside, if you like, of the identifiable victim effect is that we know that uh, if charities tell a story of one particular person, one particular family, say, then they will get more donations because it personalises it, because it's very difficult to imagine. Yeah. 10,000 people have lost their homes because of an earthquake. What, what does that even look like? Yeah. like? You could see from above some of it, but you still won't see the 10,000 people that have lost their homes. Whereas if you hear one person's story, one yeah. family's story about how awful it is, you can really, really relate to that. And just as we've heard, you know, many stories from people in Ukraine and 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 the suffering there, you can remember those individual stories and, and relate to it and identify with it. And then it helps you see the bigger picture yeah. and what needs to be done. And so those things, those things do matter. And then of course the the advantage is there, say, for the charities is that the money comes in and of course the money doesn't all go to that family who, who spoke. It. it goes to you know, amongst many, many people, but it gets people's, um, it allows people to relate to it because it is so hard to relate to a big number of people. Yeah. Claudia, it's been, uh, as always, it's been very fun talking to you about another brilliant topic. Um, Just to sort of close down this conversation, we've only sort of touched on the surface of what your Mm. book covers. In terms of practical things, right, for you know, this podcast is called Feel Better, Live More. When we feel better in ourselves, we get more out of our lives. So have you got a few practical things mm. that people can think about right at the end of this conversation? Yeah, so one is to become a kindness twitcher. So to, to look out for acts of mm. kindness, to look out for the kind things you do and to look out for the kind things other people do. Um, another is to to really listen when one way of being really kind is to really listen. So when someone is telling you a story, you know, not to be half distracted on your phone or looking over their shoulder to see who else is at this party, but to really listen and really, really make it, at that moment, they should be the centre of your world. So at that moment, you know, really listen to them is, is, a, is a really kind thing to do. Um, if you want to become more um, empathic, you need to believe that for a start that it is a skill where you can improve at that. Yeah. And to, uh, reading novels has been shown, you know, there's, there's really good research from Canada on how people who read 
novels, their empathy improves. Um, because what better way to get an insight into the world of somebody who you don't know at all, you know, who maybe live in a very different world from you and to find out what they're feeling, what they're thinking, then reading novels yeah. is, a, is a really good one to do there. And then if you want to be kinder, to think, yeah, the little acts do kind do count as well. It doesn't have to be something huge, but don't let me stop you if you want to do something huge. But also to think about how you might be kindness and to be sort of true to yourself in how you might be kinder. So if you're, uh, don't, you don't, you haven't got to start, I don't know, volunteering somewhere if that's really not your, your thing. Um, or maybe instead you'd rather donate some money to charity rather than volunteer. That's okay. But but choose, well, what, what are the areas? You, could, you can't do everything. What are the areas where you could be a bit kinder? You know, what could you do at work to be a bit? Is there a way of making everyone feel a bit better at work? And, and to just try to think in every situation, can I leave this situation a little better than when I got here? Love it. Claudia, what a beautiful topic to be writing about. What a beautiful topic to raise awareness of. And my... My deep, deep hope, actually forget hope, let's call it a challenge. Everyone <laughs> who's listening right now or watching straight after this conversation, before the end of the day, do something kind, proactively do something kind. Wouldn't that be wonderful that if everyone great. could do love, that? Love that. Claudia, that's coming back on the show. Thank you ever so much for having me. It's been fun. really hope you enjoyed that conversation. As always, do think about one thing that you can take away and start applying into your own life. Now, before you go, just wanted to let you know about Friday 5. It's my free weekly email containing five simple ideas to improve your health and happiness. In that email, I share exclusive insights that I do not share anywhere else, including health advice, how to manage your time better, interesting articles or videos that I've been consuming and quotes that have caused me to stop and reflect. And I have to say, in a world of endless emails, it really is delightful that many of you tell me it is one of the only weekly emails that you actively look forward to receiving. So if that sounds like something you would like to receive each and every Friday, you can sign up for free at drchatterjee.com forward slash Friday 5. Now, if you are new to my podcast, you may be interested to know that I have written five books that have been bestsellers all over the world, covering all kinds of different topics, happiness, food, stress, sleep, behavior change and movement, weight loss, and so much more. So please do take a moment to check them out. They are all available as paperbacks, ebooks, and as audiobooks, which I am narrating. If you enjoyed today's episode, it is always appreciated if you can take a moment to share the podcast with your friends and family or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week. And please note that if you want to listen to this show without any adverts at all, that option is now available for a small monthly fee on Apple and on Android. All you have to do is click the link in the episode notes in your podcast app. And always remember, you are the architect of your own health. Making lifestyle changes always worth it, because when you feel better, you live more.